Good morning. If you have your Bible with you, or if you'd like to take one out from the pew in front of you and turn to Matthew chapter 6, that's where we'll be spending almost all of our time this morning, Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 19. Thank you for being here this morning. And I want to begin uh, with a compliment to my fellow worker, Harold Hancock. Um, Harold has great depth to his sermons. Uh, One of the things that I judge a sermon by whenever I'm sitting through a sermon is, do I learn anything? Do I learn anything new? And almost without fail, I learn something from one of Harold's sermons. There's something that he says that I'd not thought about it in that way, or it it sparks a thought in my head. Um, I'm a note taker. Um, I I know some of you are note takers as well. That's a habit that I got into in college with sermons. Um, And I love taking notes, helps me to stay focused when my mind wants to go in every different direction. But I was somewhat frustrated when I first moved here and I was taking notes with Harold's lessons because Harold would say, now I've got three points this morning. And I would say, okay, and I'd do number one, and I'd do point number two, and then I'd do point number three, and I'm looking at the clock, I'm saying, this is a super short lesson, and then I'd do point number four, and then I'd do point number five. And then Harold would say, now for my second point. Um, And so I came to learn, as Harold has said himself, just because it's three points doesn't mean there aren't lots of subpoints to go with it. And and that shows that there's a density there. There's a, a depth to that. And I say I'm complimenting Harold because that's exactly the way Jesus preached, with that kind of thickness and depth and density to the things that he said. And every word was important, and every word carried great weight with it. And we can look at the sermons Jesus preached, for example, the one here in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, his most famous, the Sermon on the Mount, and we see that depth with points and lots of subpoints to go along with it. And there are lots of ways that we might divide up the Sermon on the Mount. But it's interesting, if you were to just take out your Bible and you were to read the Sermon on the Mount out loud, straight through, it's only about 15 minutes long. And yet, how many books have been written, libraries of books, about this one sermon? For example, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the longtime minister at Westminster Chapel in London, He famously preached a 60-sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. You think, my series are long. 60 sermons straight through on the Sermon on the Mount, which was later compiled into a 600-page book. And of those 60 sermons that he preached, Lloyd-Jones lamented about the brevity required of a sermon format. And he said in the foreword to the second edition, I sometimes find that I succeeded in only doing about half of what I had planned and purposed to say. In reading his work, I found it to be one of the richest personal studies of my life, reading through those 60 sermons. And yet it fell far short of the impact and depth and density of that original one 15-minute sermon. And it's possible, of course, that that Matthew is summarizing to a certain degree what Jesus' sermon was. And it's possible, some have suggested, that it would have been more like a Bible class, that Jesus would have spoken and then there would be question and answers to go with it. And yet what we have recorded, this sermon, is so so deep and so thick. Uh, Whole books have been written on the first ten verses alone, the Beatitudes. 
Many more have been written on the next four verses after that, which call us to be salt and light as Christians. Each section is thick with meaning and application. Each verse is worthy of a sermon contemplating the one verse. In thinking of its depth, how many points are there in the Sermon on the Mount? Have you ever gone through, if you're a note taker like me, have you ever gone through and tried to outline the Sermon on the Mount? Say, what are Jesus' points and subpoints as you go through it? In my Bible, I'm, I'm reading out of the New King James, and it's a, a wide version edition, and it's got, it's got headings to each section where, where those who translated tried to say, okay, these are the different sections that we think are found within the book. Um, my Bible divides it into 22 sections. So three chapters, uh, maybe that's a three-point lesson, right? Three chapters, but with 22 subpoints to go with it. However you divide it. It is clear that within this sermon we find several what I might call sermonettes. So those are those points with lots of subpoints about a specific aspect of the kingdom of God, its citizens, and the life that is expected of them, of us. And while practical, it is a call that Jesus makes to a higher life of spirituality as much as anything else. But this morning, I want to focus on one of those sermonettes. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 34, is tied together with this common theme of life on this earth and the things of this life on earth. And so let's consider together Christ's sermonette about life on this earth from Matthew 6, 6 verses 9 through 34. And we see that this is tied together in this way by the language that Jesus uses in this section. He is talking about on earth. He talks about your life. He talks about the body and what we will eat and what we will drink and what we will wear. It is reminiscent in many ways of the book of Ecclesiastes. What's the point of life under the sun? The preacher Solomon asks. And the greatest preacher Jesus Himself, the Master Teacher, answers and asks and answers similar questions here. It is about how to live life, and specifically how to live life without worry while on this earth and with hope in the next. So let's consider His sermonette together. Three requirements that Jesus, that Jesus commands to live life without worry and with hope while on this earth. And with each requirement, here's what Jesus does. He starts super broad, and with each point, He narrows His focus, He narrows His scope just a little bit more, from the very broad to the very specific. So let's go through this sermonette and see it for ourselves. Three requirements to live life without worry and with hope. Number one, we must have an all-consuming desire. You're a Christian. You're a kingdom citizen. How do you live life without worry and with hope? You have to have an all-consuming desire. This is broad. What's important to you? What's life about? Let's read together verses 19 through 24. If you would with me, please. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 19. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For 
Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, that is healthy, can see, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, maybe your translation says evil or unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. So Jesus begins with the heart, as he so often does, and this is a heart thing. What do you want? Why do you get out of bed in the morning? What have you set your mind on? Have you set your mind on things above or things beneath? As Paul would ask in the book of Colossians. Where is your treasure? Jesus asks. Because there your heart will be also. So is your heart, is your desire, is your treasure for things in heaven or things on the earth? And if you are blind in your heart, because that's what he's talking about when he says the eye being good or bad. He's talking about that inner eye. He's talking about the heart then if you are blind there, that is a far deeper darkness than any physical blindness. Our all-consuming desire should be, first of all, for heaven. We are laying up our treasure there. Our greatest desire is to go to heaven because our greatest desire is for God. We have a choice to make between this world, between mammon and God. And no one can serve two masters. And it's interesting the words that he uses there. Hate and despise go together really, really well, don't they? But he also says loyalty and love. Love and loyalty. And I think there's a progression there that Jesus suggests. If we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, the greatest command from Jesus himself, then that means that we're going to be absolutely loyal to him. Our desire is going to be for Him. Now, how does that relate to worry and hope? Well, worry is the ugly cousin of materialism. Materialism is an unrighteous desire for physical things. I want those things. I want to lay up treasures here on earth. But worry is often the fear of not having those things, as we'll read about here in just a moment. And so worry springs out so often of our materialism. We're worried because we're laying up for ourselves treasures in heaven. And why should we worry? Because thieves break in and steal. And it rusts. And it can be taken away from us. And so we should worry if we're laying up for ourselves treasures on earth because those things are not sure. And they are not secure. But if we lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven, it's incorruptible. It's undefiled. It is reserved in heaven for us. And it is kept more safely than anything on this earth possibly could be. And so we have hope, and it removes that worry. We are hoping for something greater. My desire is not ultimately and and consumingly for physical things. So why should I worry about them? If that's not my desire, I am hoping for something greater. Um, I think there's a great example of this in 2 Timothy 1 and verse 12. Will you listen as I read this verse? Paul says, For this reason I also suffer these things, physical things on earth. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, 
I have a desire for God. I believe in God. And I am persuaded that He is able to keep what I have committed Him until that day. I have a desire for God. I have a desire for heaven. And I believe that God will keep those treasures that I've laid up until He comes to get me. And that I can be with Him. So let's go back to that idea when you get out of the bed in the morning. When you get out of bed this morning, any morning, do you know who it is you serve? Are you clear about your purpose and about your king? Are you persuaded that he cares for you and that he will keep you safe through to heaven? May I humbly suggest that you start each morning with a prayer. You probably do that already. But specifically, pray pray to God asking for his help, but also reaffirming your loyalty to him. God, I desire you more than anything else. And so I want to go to be in heaven with you. So examine your desire. We'll ask these questions for each of the points. Do you love God more than anyone else? Is He your all-consuming, absolute desire? And secondly, do you want to go to heaven more than anything else? Well, that's big, isn't it? That's desire. Yes, I love God. Yes, I want to go to heaven. And if you answer yes to those two questions, then we can narrow our scope a little more. But this is the foundation. Jesus says if you want to live without worry and with hope, you've got to have absolute desire, all-consuming desire for God in heaven. And if you do, then we can narrow our scope and be a little more practical with these things. So the second requirement is this, an accurate perception. We have to see some things clearly. Our desire is there. I love God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. But there are some things that I must understand if I'm going to apply that correctly. And we see a few things as we continue in our text. First, in verses 25 and 26, we have to have an accurate perception of our value, of our value to God. Read with me. Therefore, I say to you, so Jesus is connecting this there. He has a therefore, right? Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? These questions that Jesus asks are rhetorical in nature. The answer should be obvious, but maybe sometimes it's helpful for us to actually answer the question. Are you not of more value to God than the birds of the air? Yes, of course you are. Thank you for answering out loud. Of course you are, right? Is your life and who you are, is it more than what you eat and the clothes that you wear? Yes, of course that it is. But if... If we become consumed with those things, we are selling our value short. This is who I am. The things that I wear, the things that I own, the things that I eat, my physical life, what I look like, those things are what's most important. And that's where my value is found. God says you have much more value than that. You are of more value than the birds of the air. And maybe that's... uh, Maybe that's obvious or should be obvious, but we serve a God who who values the birds of the air as well. Marking your spot in Matthew 6, just turn maybe two or three or four pages over to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. 
and verse 29, talking about value and talking about birds as it relates to us, Jesus says later in his ministry, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? Um, This is a small coin worth about one-sixteenth of a denarius. So it's small, right? It's not worth very much. And you can buy two sparrows for one of these pennies, one of these coins, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your Father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. God knows you so intimately, He knows how many hairs are on your head. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Don't don't sell yourself too cheaply. Because all Christians have great God-given worth. All people have great God-given worth. And God wants you to see that in yourself. Listen as I read Romans 12 and verse 3, if you would. Paul says, For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Now you probably knew, maybe, that Romans 12 and verse 3 said that. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. But that's not where the verse ends. But to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Now we shouldn't think of ourselves too highly, obviously, but we shouldn't think of ourselves too lowly either. With soberness, he says, here's how you should think. You should see yourself as God sees you. We need to see ourselves correctly. And we often address the the temptation, the, the sin of arrogance or pride. But what about the other extreme where we see ourselves as worth little and capable of little? That's not how God sees you. And you shouldn't see yourself that way either. God calls us to be humble, but not timid. He calls us to be meek, but not insecure. He calls us to be faithful servants, not useless prisoners. You have worth and value to God. And that's seen, again, by looking at ourselves the way God looks at us. How much much are you valued by God? Well, consider four things. He created you in His image. You are like God, Genesis 1 tells us. He knows you personally. We just read that in verse 30, right? He knows how many hairs are on your head. He loves you personally. Paul said in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, who loves me, who loves me personally, and then number 4, he gave his son for you, who loves me and gave himself for me. The ultimate value of thing in in our culture, in our capitalistic culture, is how much does it cost? How much was God willing to pay for you? He was willing to to give His Son, His only begotten Son, to buy you, to redeem you. That's how much you mean to God. And here's the crazy thing. If you're a Christian, you have even more value than that. Everyone can say that. Everyone can say they're made in the image of God, that God knows them, that God loves them, and that God gave His Son for them. Everybody can say that. But if you have come to Christ and become a Christian... There's even more for you. You are described as royal and chosen, God's own special people. By God's grace, He has made you His child, an heir of all that He has, of King of kings and Lord of lords. You're a Christian, 
And you need to start acting like His own special people. You are of great value to God. And not because of your power. Because the next thing that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, He wants you to see correctly, have an accurate perception of your limited limited power. In verse 27, Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? There are so many things that are outside of our control. Um, I, I want you to raise your hand this morning if you're a control freak. Raise your hand if you're a control freak. Okay, we've got a few hands up. That's kind of a trick question because I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are saying, well, I don't have to answer if I don't want to answer, right? You know what that means? You're a control freak, right? We all think we control so much in our lives. And that feeling of losing control when it comes, and it will come, causes us to worry. What am I going to do? Because I, I, I can't get all these moving parts to align the way I want them to for it to be just the way I want it to be. No, you can't. So what are you going to do? Well, remember that you don't have the control that you thought you did. And remembering that should remind us to perceive correctly God's ultimate power. Our power is so limited. But God's power is not limited at all. Keep reading in verse 28. So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Uh, Spring is beginning. How do I know? Because there was a beautiful layer of pollen on my car this morning. So spring is beginning. And isn't it amazing that we can look out and we can see the flowers? As we were driving back uh, from spring break, the blue bonnets were starting to come out in a few places, right? And all of these flowers, they just they come so naturally. And we can plant them and so forth, but, but on their own they come. We can spray stuff on them to try and keep them out. And yet there the dandelions are again, right? God clothes the flowers that are in the field. And if you've seen a a field of blue bonnets or whatever the case might be, not even Solomon in all of his glory was arrayed like these. God has the power to do that for every single flower that ever blooms. Now if, verse 30, God so clothes the grass of the field, and He does, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, which means it doesn't have nearly the value that you have that we talked about a second ago. Will He not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? What can God not do? Nothing nothing within our imagination is beyond our God. Listen to Ephesians 3 and verse 20. Now to Him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. Now notice it's not our power, but it's God's power working in us to do exceedingly abundantly above anything we can ask. Think of the biggest thing you could ask for. But it's not just that. Beyond anything we can think or imagine. And if God can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can imagine. Can't He just provide for our needs? Needs that He knows that we have? Because we need to have an accurate perception, not just of God's power. There's lots of powerful people who aren't very nice. 
but also of God's care for every one of us. Read verse uh, 31 and 32. Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows, knows that you need all of these things. He knows that you need all of these things. And that's not so he can go, I know what you need and I'm not going to give it to you. He knows what you need so that he might give you what you need. Uh, That's seen just a few verses down. Notice in Matthew chapter 7, verses 9 through 11. Matthew chapter 7, verses 9 through 11. The admonition from Jesus here is keep asking, keep seeking. Because God will give it to you if you are persistent, if you're importunate, as we talked about in the Bible class. And in verse 9, he talks about the character and nature of God. He says, Or what man is there among you, among you people, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? Uh, Luke adds in Luke chapter 11 and verse 2, If he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? I mean, that's cold-blooded, isn't it? Your, your child is coming asking for something good, and you give them something that is evil. Verse 11, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Even us, as many shortcomings as we have as physical fathers, we try and give good gifts to our children. How much more God who knows... God who wants to bless us, and more importantly, knows how to bless us. He knows exactly what we need, and He wants to give us what we need. To the parents, uh, or grandparents, or aunts or uncles, have you ever given your child or a child something, and you intended it as a gift, but afterward you regretted giving it to them? Have you ever done that? Um, Why would I do that, you ask yourselves? Uh, Brooklyn has a, has a dairy allergy, many of you know that, and so she can't drink straight milk, um, cheese, sour cream, uh, but she's able to uh, have some of those things if they're baked into something else or cooked into something else. So she has an allergy, but it's not like totally, she can't have any of it. And so we've had to experiment through the years, you know, how much can she have and and it'd be okay. And so there's some approved things that have a little bit of dairy in them, but she still does okay eating them. And one of the things on the approved list uh, are goldfish, um, even cheddar goldfish. And she loves cheddar goldfish. Well, a few years ago, um, me being the wonderful father that I am, wanting to give good gifts to my children, I knew that goldfish were on the approved list. And so we were at a gas station, I believe it was, And I got her some goldfish. But the goldfish that I got her were flavor-blasted extreme cheddar goldfish. And so she eats them, and her face starts breaking out, and her tummy starts hurting, and I believe it ended with her vomiting. I want to give good gifts to my children. I wanted to give her a good gift then. But I didn't know exactly what it was I needed to give her. I made a mistake. God doesn't make mistakes like that. He knows exactly what we can handle. He knows exactly what we need. And we shouldn't worry because God is not going to test us beyond that which we are able to bear. But with the temptation, we'll make a way of escape that we might be able to bear it. And He wants to provide our needs and promises to provide our needs. Just what we need. 
So examine your perception. Do you see God and yourself correctly? Do you see your value but your limited power? Do you see God's unlimited power and his care for you? Three requirements. What's number three? Number three is an attainable focus in the last two verses from this sermonette. In verse 33, he says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. An attainable focus on just seeking God first. That simplifies it, doesn't it? What pleases God? What does he desire of me? What would God have me do in this situation? Can we all just make the commitment before we get into any of the circumstances of the situation or the decision that must be made or or our plans for the future, can we all just make the commitment that we're going to seek God first in whatever it is? And sometimes what that is might not be totally clear, but if we're clear in our heart and mind and our focus that I'm just going to do what God wants me to do, I'm going to seek Him first then it makes our decision so much easier. This helps us to focus on what really matters. You know, there are some things that seem so important now that that won't matter at all in eternity. Uh, We talk about, I've talked with you before, about giving it the eternity test, right? The, The question my dad always asked that I've passed on is, does this have any eternal significance? Does it have any eternal significance? Well, if it doesn't, I'm not going to waste too much time focusing on that thing. I remember my mom was a a teacher, still is, and she had a quote that was hanging up in uh, her classroom, I believe. I remember reading it a hundred times when I was growing up. And she hung it up to remind herself why she was a teacher and why she wanted to be a teacher to begin with. And those of you who are teachers know sometimes in the midst of a school year, it's easy to forget some of those things, as parents especially, but uh, other things perhaps get in the way of that focus. And so she wanted to, to bring it back to a, a focus that was, that was right. And so here's the quote. A hundred years from now, it will not matter what my bank account was, the sort of house I lived in, or the kind of car that I drove. But the world may be different because I was important in the life of a child. She needed that reminder of her focus. And if we can make an eternal difference in the destiny of a soul, of how much more value is that? If it will have significance 10,000 years from now or 10 billion years from now, then I have a right to be concerned about it and focus on it. We need to remember the things that are most important and make the most important important again. Is that attainable? It is because of the last thing that he says, an attainable focus on just today. Read verse 34. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Can you give God one day of your life? Today? I want you to imagine for a moment that that was all you had to give. And you knew, you knew when this day was over, either you were dying or God was coming again. If you knew that, if you had that that focus that, hey, this is the last day that I've got, could you serve God 
for just today? Could you live faithfully? Could you live without worry? Could you have hope for the end of the day and what God has in store for you? I I bet you could. But the problem comes in when we start allowing too much future evil to sneak into the present. Sufficient for the day is its own evil. When we start adding the evils of a day in the future and a month in the future and years in the future, when we start adding all of those days, then it's too much. It's too much for today and the evil therein. Worry never solved a future problem. But many times it has complicated a present problem because we worry about the future. What could I worry about? Um, I, I spent a little time with that yesterday evening. And I was thinking about all of the things that I could worry about that could cause me worry in this life. And, and my list is getting pretty long. Uh, I've got a daughter going into junior high next year. That was, that was high on the list of things that I could worry about. And your list is different from mine, but it probably isn't any shorter than mine. But we are encouraged by God not to drown in all of those what-ifs and all of those things of the future, but just focus on the present. Robert Louis Stevenson famously said, Anyone can carry his burden, however hard, for one day. Anyone can live sweetly, patiently, lovingly, purely, till the sun goes down. And this is all that life means. That's life. Live for God and live for God today if we will do it. Uh, To put it in biblical terms, Jeremiah in Lamentations chapter 3, verses 21 through 23, in perhaps the most negative book in all of the Bible, it's named Lamentations. It's It's named after sorrow and lament and pain. As he goes through all of the things that are wrong in his life, all of the problems that he and the nation have, He says in verse 21, This, this I recall to mind. Therefore I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because His compassions, they fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, he says to God. What does Jeremiah do? He reminds himself of God and God's care and God's unlimited power and he puts the focus back on just seeking God first today, this day. And we have this wonderful reset that God has built into our lives where every morning when we wake up, we have another opportunity. If God grants us that chance, we can wake up with the chance to serve Him again. And because of that, it's attainable. I don't have to serve God all of my life. I've got to serve God today. And then serve Him tomorrow. And then the next. And before we know it, we're walking in the Spirit. Well, three points, three requirements. But the three-point sermon turned into a sermon with eight sub-points, didn't it? But Jesus is able to bring all of it back to a single point of practical application and admonition. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Examine your focus even this morning. Can you seek God first today, right now? Well, what do you need to do in order to seek Him? Is there something that you need to make right? Do you need to come to Jesus in humble submission, either to put Him on in baptism or to seek His forgiveness of your sins as you repent of them? Well, you have brothers and sisters in Christ who are on the same journey with you. And if there's anything that we can do to help you, 
Come now, while together we stand and while we sing.